Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. This morning, we have the privilege to hear from one of our staff pastors, Hillary Leeper. Has, uh, she's been on our pastoral team now for about two months, and she is our connections pastor. What that basically means is everything related to hospitality and welcome. She oversees. She is the reason why all of our guests are, uh, are reached out following their visit to uh, to. to, re- to extend another well another invitation to come and be a part of our church so anytime you invite somebody to come with you likely they will hear from Hillary or someone on her team and we're so thrilled with what Hillary is doing Hillary is a high level leader she's an absolute team player she is a student of the Bible and she's from the Chicago area so she likes to have fun she loves food and she's all about family and we are so blessed that she is on our team would you please help Hillary feel so welcome to the platform this morning as she comes to share. Thank you, Amos. Thanks, Amos. Good morning. Good morning. I am so honored to be with you today. We are going to continue our series on the book of Luke. We're just going to jump right in and we're going to pick up right where Pastor Amos left off in Luke chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, Please open them to Luke 16. If you don't have a Bible and you want to get out your smartphone, all you have to do is open a browser and type in Luke 16 NLT, which is New Living Translation. Click it, and it'll take you right there. I want you to stay in it. I'm not going to have the words on the screen. I want you to keep your Bible open the whole time because we're going to walk through this text. How many of you love a good story, right? Love a good story. You guys, Jesus was an incredible storyteller. Some of my favorite stories are kind of the the rags to riches, um, turning point, like dramatic change type stories. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie uh, Count of Monte Cristo. I love this movie. Has anybody seen it? There's a book too. I guess the book is so different, so I I don't know about that. I haven't read it. Um, but the, I don't want to spoil it because you should see it. But this movie, I, there's this guy, Edmond Dantes. He's this great guy. And he is betrayed by his friend and falsely put in prison. And then he meets this other prisoner and he tells him about this hidden treasure. So Edmond takes on this long, patient journey to escape from prison. And then he escapes and finds this hidden treasure, totally changes his life and his persona, becomes the Count of Monte Cristo. Well, those kind of movies or stories where there is this dramatic reversal, this reversal of fortune, screenwriters know, screenwriters, authors, they know that there's something in us as humans that connects with us so deeply, there's a turning point, a reversal. Well. In the Gospel of Luke, we have reversals of fortune all over the place. It starts at the very beginning in Luke chapter 1 with Mary's song. She talks about how the the humble will be exalted, the proud will be brought down low, the poor will be rich, and the wealthy will end up with nothing. And then today, the story that we're going to read today, we see an incredible 
reversal of fortune. So let's, let's read it. If you would stand to your feet with me. You guys know it here at Cedar Valley, for those of you that are new, we don't do the up and down thing every, all throughout the service. We just do it when we're reading our primary text because this is to mark that God is speaking, not, not us. So let's read this together. I'm gonna to start in verse 19. Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home for I have five brothers and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen, even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We believe you speak to us through it. So Holy Spirit, illuminate your word to us. Grant us understanding. Open our ears so we can hear what the Spirit says to the church today. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So just like the story of the shrewd manager that Amos talked about last week, this, this story can be kind of hard to understand. So the question we really need to ask to, in order to understand it is why did he tell it? What was happening right before the story what brought it on? Why did he feel like he needed to share it? So in the, in the shrewd manager that Amos discussed last week, he, we learned to use our resources for the benefit of all others. All you, all he, what was it? All he wants is all you have, right? That's what we learned. And he's talking to his disciples here. But since you have your Bibles open, you should. You should have those Bibles open. If you look back, you know, we started in verse 19. If you go back to verse 11, there are actually some things happening right after the shrewd manager that help us understand why he told this story. So in Luke, in, in 16:11, Jesus says, if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? That gives us a little bit of a clue here. 
And then in verse 13, he says, no one can have two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and be enslaved to money. You can't have two masters. It's like having two bosses, right? At your job, if you, if you have a place of employment, you probably have a supervisor or a boss. Well, what if you had two? And one boss was telling you one thing, and then the other boss or supervisor was telling you something totally different. You, when push comes to shove, you would have to make a choice, right? Between these two bosses, you would have to say, okay, if I'm going to obey and submit myself to this guy or gal, then I have to completely abandon what the other person is saying. You can't serve both God and money. So that gives us a clue of what's happening today. And then also in verse 14, the Pharisees who dearly loved their money. So now he was talking to his disciples, but then the Pharisees come in and they dearly loved their money. So this also tells us something about why Jesus is telling the story. And then in verses 16 through 18, Jesus starts talking about the law and the prophets. It almost seems a little bit random, but what he's doing here is he's talking about how Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That's essentially the Old Testament, right? He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He embodies the teachings of the Old Testament. And if they're not going to listen to the law and the prophets, they're definitely not going to listen to Jesus. So then Jesus tells a story about a man whose God was money, a man who valued his wealth over the values of the kingdom, a man who did not listen to the scriptures, and now he was experiencing the consequences for his actions. So let's, let's take a look. We'll go verse by verse through this story of the rich man. And I see two parts to the story. We have a contrast, and then we have a conversation. We have a contrast in life, contrast in death, and then a conversation. So you can see how the outline breaks up right there. So let's, let's look at this. Let's dive into this story. We'll first look at the rich man and see the first contrast. In 19, verse 19, it says, Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. So you guys, this, this guy was rich. And there are like three or four clues that tell us how rich he was. First, he was clothed in purple. This is not a Minnesota Viking. I'm not saying that. Um, no, what, so what is it? Why is purple like a description of wealth? Some of you might be familiar with it as like a royal color. But purple was crazy expensive in the ancient world. In order to dye one robe or tunic purple, you had to use this very rare shellfish called a murex. And what you would do is you had, scholars believe you had to take 10,000 of the murex to squeeze them in order to take the dye into one robe or tunic, 10,000. That's crazy, right? And the thing is what's funny is that it stunk. You can imagine, it stunk. And the rich people, like this guy doesn't care that his robe is stinky because it is, dis is displaying his wealth. 
And then it says that he was wearing fine linen. Fine linen was from Egypt. It was the most expensive thing for underwear. This is your undergarments that he's talking about. We're not talking about Fruit of the Loom or Hanes. This is not the kind of underwear this guy's wearing. He's wearing the finest linen, the finest underwear money can buy. So in other words, he's flaunting his wealth. He's like wearing it for everyone to see. Many of us can identify with this. In every culture, people wear something to kind of display their wealth. Now, I was a product of the 80s and early 90s. That's when I grew up. And for me in my school, if you, if you were wearing guest jeans, you were a rich kid. <laughs> you guys could probably think about what it was in your generation of what people wore. I remember in movies, you know, you'd see these ladies wearing mink coats or fur coats or something that was like displaying their wealth. So this guy is super wealthy. And then it says he lived each day in luxury. The phrase here is the same phrase that Jesus uses to tell the parable of the prodigal son. When he's saying that the father welcomes the younger son and wants to kill the fattened calves, celebrate because his younger son came home, that's the same phrase, that sort of feasting. That's what he's talking about here. And he lived like that every single day. That is such extravagance. And then in verse 20, it said that this rich man had a gate. So this is like this walled compound, right? Where the word here is like a palace gate, a city gate. That is how wealthy he is. So that's our first character. And then we have this contrast in the poor man. Let's look at verse 20. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. The contrast could not be more stark. Let's paint a picture here. So in the first century, they would have had, they had villages where there would be like a village green or a village square and all of the common people would, li would live around it. Um, and the beggars, the poor, would go to the village green in order to beg for money. And there would often be a rich person, maybe one or two rich people that were considered the patron or the benefactors for their village. Well, this guy is so poor, so lame, so ill that he can't even beg on the village green. He has to be carried by the people to the rich man's gate. And the social custom was that this rich man should be providing for the poor man. That was the expectation. And that is why they carried him there. But it says that he was laid at his gate. And it also says that his name was Lazarus. Now, Lazarus comes from Eleazar, which means the one who God helps. This name is shocking to me because when you look at this poor man, it doesn't seem like God is helping him, right? I mean, who, who does God help? If he's not, I mean, I would hate to be the one that God does help if that's, if that's the one who God helps, right? But the point of this is really amazing. Jesus is brilliant. 
You would expect the Pharisees listening would have expected the rich man to have a name. But it's not the rich man. It's the poor man who's given an identity in this story. And that is so significant. And then it says that he is covered in sores. So unlike the rich man who's covered in purple and fine linen, Lazarus is covered with open sores. And then in verse 21, it says, as Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table. So he is so poor, so destitute, he's wanting to eat the rich man's garbage. Now, normally in the ancient world, they would give the crumbs from the table to the dogs. How many of you have dogs? You guys have dogs? Do you feed? Do you, maybe you're like, no, no people food for my dogs in my house. But so we, uh, my family and I, we were just at uh, visiting my sisters for the 4th of July, and they have dogs. And me and my kids, we would look at these little puppy dog eyes staring at us when we were eating a meal. And after, I would always save, my kids did too, right? We would save our last bite and kind of sneak it to the dogs, right? I mean, this is, now they didn't, in the ancient world, they did not keep dogs as pets. They had, uh, they were mostly wild or stray, but sometimes like a watch or a guard dog. But here, the, the Lazarus is longing. It says that he's longing, but he wasn't given it. He was not given the crumbs from the table. He simply longed for it. So it's clear that the rich man does not even seem to see Lazarus. He does not, he's not taking the social responsibility for the man laid at his gate. And then it says, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. It's hard to know what to make of this. Is this like a good or a bad thing? That the, I mean, the first thing that I thought was, that's disgusting. <laughs> that's so gross, right? The dogs are licking his sores. But in the text, there's actually a really strong adversative here. It should read, but the dogs were licking his open sores. So the rich man doesn't notice him. The nameless rich man does nothing to help Lazarus, but... The dogs are caring for him. The dogs were considered unclean by the Jews, but they gave more care to him in this moment than the rich man did. So we have these two characters, and it almost seems like Jesus is using hyperbole, right? Like exaggeration, like this rich man, purple, fine linen, and then Lazarus, so poor. But the reality is, most of us have seen and experienced this sort of disparity in real life, right? Depending, I mean, no matter what culture you're from, I've seen this kind of disparity. You know, you see, you can even go downtown Minneapolis and see fancy cars, valet parking, fancy restaurants right next to somebody who's homeless with a cardboard sign begging for help. We, we see this disparity all the time. But next we fast forward. We've seen a contrast in life, and now we're going to see a contrast in death. Let's read verse 22. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. So this poor man dies. 
He was not buried. It doesn't say he was buried because he didn't have a charitable patron to provide a burial for him. So he's taken to Abraham. Now the King James Version says Abraham's bosom, which kind of makes me giggle every time I say it, but he was taken to Abraham's side. So this actually needs some explaining. What does this mean? Why does he go to the father of their faith, Father Abraham? So there's a painting I wanna show up here. I think Ben is gonna put it up in a minute. We, um, we all have, this, this is a little abstract painting, but you can kind of see what banqueting looked like in the first century. We all have, depending on your culture, the culture that you grew up in, we have rules for how you eat at a table, right? So we're used to sitting up at a table, and then in my house, you had to clean your plate, right? You had to clean your plate, and that didn't really help me when I went to other countries where if you cleaned your plate, they would just give you more, right? Because it was their social custom that if your plate was empty, oh, you want more, you're supposed to leave food on your plate if you're full. Well, I, I had to learn that the hard way. Um, but this is, in the first century, this is what it would have looked like for them to be reclining together. Like in John 13, John 13, Jesus is reclining with his disciples. And, and then what they do is they, you see these cushions that they have, and then they would have like this low table, and they would rest their elbow, on their left elbow on the cushion, and they would reach over like this with their right hand. They would break bread and dip it in a puree and feed themselves or even feed the person next to them. Some of you were like, ah, personal space, that's too close. <laughs> um, but this, so when, when John, for example, when, in John 13, when he's uh, next to Jesus, it says that he reclined and put his head into the chest of Jesus because he was at Jesus' right hand. This is exactly the picture that we have of Lazarus. He's at Abraham's right hand, and he can lean his head into Abraham's bosom or his chest. It's this picture of beautiful intimacy, of paradise, that he is in, he is now with his father, Abraham. I love the strong contrast between these two tables. In life, Lazarus got nothing from the rich man's table, but in death, we have a reversal of fortune. He, he is sitting with his father, Abraham, feasting at his table, a beautiful reversal of fortune. And then we get to the rich man, continuing on in verse 22. The rich man also died and was buried because he was wealthy so he could be buried. And then he went to the place of the dead, or some of your versions might say Hades. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. So he's buried, but now, I mean, the Hades was usually just a general place for the dead, but here it very clearly means he's in hell. He is in torment. The rich man is now suffering. And the question that we need to be asking ourselves is why was he sent to hell? Why was he in hell? That's really the point of this parable. So now we come to Luke 16, verse 24, where we're going to have a conversation. We've had a contrast in these characters, a reversal of fortune. Now we have a conversation, a dialogue between the rich man and Abraham. Let's read verse 24. 
The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. I want to make some observations here with this verse. First of all, I would expect if, if the rich man is, is seeing Lazarus in paradise in, with his father Abraham, I would expect the rich man to have a little remorse, to feel a little repentant maybe or something, but there is no remorse. He is still only thinking of himself. And he doesn't even address Lazarus. He doesn't talk to him directly, but it's very clear he knows Lazarus's name and he knows who he was. So in life, he did actually see him. He did know he was at his gate and he did nothing about it. He did nothing about it. And then the rich man wants Lazarus to wait on him. He is ordering Lazarus around from hell. I mean, that's crazy. The rich man who showed no mercy in life is now asking for mercy in his death. Lazarus was the beggar in life, and now the rich man becomes the beggar. We have a real reversal of fortune. And how does Abraham respond? Verse 25, but Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. I love how he dresses him as son. It seems a little ironic to me. He says, you're getting what you deserve. And Lazarus is getting what he deserves. I love how the NIV actually says, you received your good things. The adjective your is actually incredibly important. He had what he chose. He made his choice. Luke 6 says, woe to you who are rich. You have already received your comfort. If acquiring wealth is your goal, then you have already received your good things. He could have chosen to follow the Old Testament, to follow the law and prophets, to have no other gods before me, not even money, and to give generously to the poor. But no, instead, money was his God. He was used by money. And he kept it all for himself. He didn't want to let it go. On the other hand, Lazarus had nothing. He received only bad things. And here there is no his. There's no adjective. Because Lazarus was not responsible for what the bad things that happened to him. And now Lazarus is being comforted. And then it says that there is a great chasm between them just as there was a gate between the rich man and Lazarus in life, now there is a permanent chasm between them that no one can cross. Their fates are eternal. And then in verse 27, we come to his second demand that he makes of Abraham. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him my, to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. 
He's still wanting Lazarus to wait on him. Let me point that out. He's still wanting him to wait on him. But then do you see what he's doing here? It almost sounds like, oh, he's starting to care for other people. But do you see how he's actually not? He's actually shifting blame. He's, he's a blame shifter. He's making excuses. He's implying that he didn't know that he should have acted differently, that he didn't have enough information. He's implying that he was treated unfairly. He's like, oh, go warn my brothers because I didn't know that this would happen to me. But how does Abraham apply? Verse 29, but Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. I love that that's all that he says. If the rich man and these Pharisees had listened to the law and prophets, they would know God's heart for the poor, for the oppressed. All over Leviticus and Deuteronomy, really all over the law and the prophets, it talks about giving generously to the poor, to have no other gods before him. But it was very clear that Yahweh was not his God. Money was his God. It was because he didn't listen to the scriptures of helping the poor, of making Yahweh his God and living for him, representing him well. Because he didn't do that, that is why he is in torment. Then we come to the last demand in verse 30. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, they will repent of their sins and turn to God. This rich man, he's holding his ground and his excuses. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. In this context, the one who would rise from the dead would have been Lazarus to come over to him. But Luke's readers, his audience, or really the people reading Luke's gospel and then us today, we see the clear allusion to Jesus' own resurrection. Those who refuse to see Jesus in the scriptures and to listen to what was written won't be convinced, even if he does rise from the dead. So this rich man's condemnation was not because he was wealthy, because Abraham was actually incredibly wealthy. It's not, that, it's not the wealth, it's because he served money. When you have those two supervisors, like I said at the beginning, and you have to choose one and completely abandon the other, he chose money. And the way that we know that he chose money is because he wouldn't let it go. He wouldn't give to those in need. As we continue on in Luke's narrative, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he goes on in his second volume to write the book of Acts, where we see what's going on in the early church. And I love how we see the church live out the teachings of Jesus. In Acts 2, it says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. In Acts 4, it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared 
everything they had. Church, that is what the kingdom of God looks like. That is heaven coming to earth when the church looks like that. So I have three lessons that I wanna just take from the text today. We've walked through it, and I have three so what's. I am apparently totally incapable of coming up with just one so what. So we have three. (laughs) So the first one, the first so what. Worship God only. Worship God only. The rich man's God was money. For those of you that have your King James Bible, it says mammon. Mammon was an Aramaic word. And I thought it was so interesting that when they wrote, when they translated and had the Greek text, they did not translate mammon from the Aramaic into the Greek because the word mammon is is really associated with like an anti-God. They kind of saw it as a God. And he is serving mammon. The thing that we take great pride in, whether it's your wealth, it's your career, your accomplishments, maybe it's your youth or good looks, whatever you take such great pride in, like this rich man, it can become your idol. It can become a God, your identity. And the way that we knew that this rich man had a different God was because he couldn't let it go. What are you hesitant to let go of this morning? What is hard for you to let go of? Maybe it is your money. Number two, the second so what? Be generous. Be generous. God is generous. And as people of faith, we are called to enact his character in the world by being generous to others. We represent him by the way that we live. Our resources are not ours, they are God's, entrusted to us, and we need to be good stewards of them. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I don't really, I live paycheck to paycheck. I don't really have riches to spare. But I like to think of resources in three categories, time, talent, treasure. We all have resources in our time, talent, treasure. Give your time. And the first and third Tuesdays of every month, we have food in the hood here at Cedar Valley. You could come and serve, give your time, and we, we provide groceries for people in our community. You can come and give your time. We have lunch in the park on Thursdays here during the summer. Come. Come to church on Thursdays and give your time and just love on people in the community. So we have time. We have our talents. Some of you have incredible skills that you can bless others with. Maybe you're an incredible cook and you can make meals for people that are in need. Maybe you wanna be a foster family or maybe you're a mechanic and you can do oil changes for single moms and widows you can give your talent. And then lastly, so we have time, talent, and then your treasure. Many of us have more treasure than we think. We can make sacrifices. We can be like the church in Acts who shares their possessions so that everybody's needs are met. Would you please stand to your feet?
this morning. I just want to have us respond to the, the story of Jesus. You guys, Jesus was a brilliant storyteller. In two sentences, he, he creates this incredible contrast between these two characters that we can learn from. And as you're standing, I would love for the, the prayer team, if you wouldn't mind coming forward. Our prayer team is here at the front after every service. If you need prayer, if you would like somebody to agree in faith with you, to think about how you can be generous, to give your time, your talent, or your treasure. If you want somebody to agree with you in prayer, and you're, th and you're thinking, man, I have, I'm having a really hard time letting go of something, letting go of something that has become an identity for you. These, this prayer team is here to pray with you. But personally, I think we all need to respond to this. When, I'm, when I was reading it, it is convicting to me. I think it's such a convicting story. So I want to lead us all in a prayer of confession. So as I pray, this is going to be our prayer of dismissal too. I invite you to take whatever posture, physical posture you want to, to respond to God. Maybe you want to lift up your hands. Maybe you want to kneel. But I invite you to pray this prayer with me in faith. So let's pray together. God, we confess that we have failed to worship you alone and we fail to give to others when you have so generously given to us. Help us be good stewards of our time, our talent, and our treasure because they are not ours, they are yours. Open our hands to give to others so they will see your generous grace and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.